Paul gives a series of instructions for relationships about what it means to serve one another because we all belong to Christ. He addresses wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Reading from Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 21. Submit to each other out of respect for Christ. For example, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. A husband is a head of his wife like Christ is head of the church, that is, the savior of the body. So, wives submit to their husbands in everything like the church submits to Christ. As for husbands, love your wives, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself to her. That's how husbands ought to love their wives. In the same way, as they do their own bodies. Each one of you should love his wife as himself, and wives should respect their husbands. As for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise attached, so that things will go well for you, and you will live for a long time in the land. As for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instructions about the Lord. As for slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and with sincere devotion to Christ. Don't work to make yourselves look good and try to flatter people, but act like slaves of Christ, carrying out God's will from the heart. Serve your owners enthusiastically, as though you were serving the Lord and not human beings. You know that the Lord will reward every person who does what is right, whether that person is a slave or a free person. As for masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Stop threatening them, because you know that both you and your slaves have a master in heaven, and God doesn't distinguish between people on the basis of status. This is the word of the Lord. Glory be to the Father, glory be to the Son, and glory be to the but think I wasn't here to ever hear uh, my predecessor, Dr. Jimmy, say that, but apparently when he would do World Without End with the Scottish brogue, it, wasn't, it was um, very distinct, 
And so many of you probably couldn't even have said that without thinking of him. In last week's passage, Paul challenged his readers to live according to a different pattern than that of the prevailing culture, a pattern that seeks to imitate God and God's self-giving love. Now he details what that pattern looks like when applied to three relationships of first century home life, namely the relationship between husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. It appears Paul assumes tacit acceptance, if not approval, of the ancient world's institutions of patriarchy and slavery with its social hierarchy that privileges one group above another. Institutions we in modern society find intolerable. But after careful examination of his instructions and how he challenges us to relate to people under the same roof, what he says speaks to us in today's world as much as it does in the world back then. It's taken centuries for women to share the same rights, respect, and privileges as men, to vote the same as men, to hold offices and positions of influence the same as men, and to receive compensation and a level of pay the same as men. It took a lot of years, a lot of voices, and a lot of change to reach this egalitarian standard that values women as much as men. So when we hear Paul say to wives, submit to your husbands, we think his words only contributes to a long-standing problem. However, when Paul uses the word submit, he does not apply it to women only. Grammatically, verse 21 concludes Paul's thought about what it means to be filled with God's Spirit so that we speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making music to the Lord in our hearts and giving thanks to God for everything, and submit to one another out of respect for Christ. So that ends, what it, that concludes that whole thought of what it means um, to be filled with the Spirit. But this sentence also becomes the theme of what follows, and therefore applies to all of us who follow Christ and learn and are trying to learn what that looks like when we reflect His person and character, both in our words and deeds. This sentence, um, well, let's just say this, submit defines us as Christians. And it levels all of us in relationship to one another. By bending the knee to our master, we take a different view of ourselves, our families, our church, and the world around us. Remember that old saying many of us learned in Sunday school? God is first, others second, and I'm last. That is what Paul means by his use of the word submit. 
At this point, I feel it incumbent to offer two qualifications to this text. The first is to say that Paul does not say a wife is subordinate to her husband. Rather, he invites her to choose to relate to her husband for his benefit. There's a difference between actively seeking to honor Christ in our relationships and being considered an inferior person who is mistreated. Choosing to submit is not the same as thinking you are subordinate to someone else. Quite the opposite. It takes a lot of personal strength and maturity to limit our own self-interest in order to serve someone else's good. Secondly, I think clarification is needed to acknowledge the church at large has been guilty of abusing texts like this one by suggesting some hierarchical order in marriage. Some argue this passage teaches that husbands are in charge and have authority over their wives. But this passage does not permit men to dominate women, nor for husbands to subject their wives to their own wills. That way of thinking is an abuse of women and an abuse of Scripture. While the passage does say a husband is head of his wife, I think the better reading is, is to see what role that is. And really, the better translation would be a husband is a leader of his wife. It delineates what he means by this, Paul does. He says what that looks like is Jesus, the very one who serves and sacrifices himself for the sake of others. A husband who leads his wife, therefore, is one who loves, honors, and cherishes her. One who elevates her worth and dignity. And a woman who is loved in this way exhibits confidence, poise, and inner strength. Not some doormat to her husband's whims and wishes. The natural question we start with in any relationship is, what do I want and need from this relationship? According to Paul, the question should be asked this way. What does God want for the person I'm related to? And what role do I play in helping that become a reality? Paul sums up the husband-wife relationship this way. Husbands are not to rule their wives. They're to be responsible for them. The same way Christ is for the church. And in turn, wives are not to be in opposition to their husbands, but to be supportive and respectful of them. Well, now that we've got that part cleared up, it's, I think it's pretty clear, right? We all know what to do. We've got our marching orders. Let's turn to the relationship between slaves and masters. A lot easier. Here, it's not what Paul says to these two groups about how to behave toward one another, but it's what he doesn't say about slavery that bothers us. How, as a spokesman for God, could he not condemn this practice altogether? 
especially when he insists that all people stand equal in their inherent worth and value before God. If that's the case, then it seems logical that no one should possess or own or dictate the will of someone else. As interpreters of ancient texts, we must guard against what scholars refer to as presentism. That's when we impose our present standards onto the text we're reading and expect our values to be lived out uh, by them. First, we must seek to know the historical and cultural context if we're to interpret a text correctly and to hear these words that were written in their day rather than judge them inferior to our way of thinking. For example, we see children and slaves as having inalienable rights. Yet when Greco-Roman philosophers drew up household codes of behavior, the weight of responsibility always rested on whom they considered to be the inferior person or people group rather than the other way around. In other words, in first century culture, children and women and slaves had no rights. Plain and simple, that's the way it was. And so now you have to hear Paul's words in that context. And what is it that he's saying? The startling thing about Paul's code of conduct is that he insists on mutual responsibility. Mutual. Parents must behave appropriately toward their children, not being harsh or provoking them to become bitter and rebellious. And masters must remember that they too have a master and must treat their slaves as Christ treats them. In other words, this is a brother and sister in Christ and act accordingly. The best advice I ever got as a parent came repeatedly from my wife. Whenever, particularly during those teen years, that I wanted to curtail or direct behavior in a certain way or change a particular verbal expression that I considered to be an attitude, um, I would get worked up. And my wife would say, before I spoke to either child, remember who the adult is. <laughs> and I would think, how insulting. But she was so right, I was acting like a child. I wanted my way. I wanted to control the situation. I knew best. And, and if I just told him or her what to do, they should fall in line. After all, I'm the head of the house, right? But by saying that to me, Katie reminded me that, that I have to be the adult. I have to be responsible. And this is the startling thing what Paul says. To the people who had privilege in first century culture, he said to them, you be responsible. You be the one to show what Christ-like life looks like in your home. 
The onus is on the husbands in the husband-wife relationship. Behave like Christ, who sacrificed and gave himself for the church. That's what it means to love your wife. The onus is on the parents. Raise your children in a way that, that encourages them, that they don't ever doubt your love for them and your support of them. And when they make a mistake or do something wrong, <laughs> which is going to happen quite often, particularly in those teen years, then, then don't beat them up for it. Don't become a child in trying to discipline them. Or punish them, but instead continue to be a parent who guides and nurtures and loves them no matter what. And when it comes to masters and slaves, masters had all the rights. Paul says, give up those rights because this is a child of God you're giving directions to. Treat them accordingly. Tim Stafford chose Lynn Coick, New Testament professor at Wheaton College, to write the commentary for the book of Ephesians in his um, God's Justice Bible that he edited. Here is what Lynn states about this passage. Christian communities that lived according to the gospel caused trouble all over the world because they upended the values that supported inequalities, such as slavery. Within the church, all are treated with equal honor. All have gifts. All are filled with the Holy Spirit. They sit together, eat together, worship together. The social controls of society that make people fall in line with such institutional injustices as slavery, ethnocentrism, and patriarchy are made powerless by the social connections and support uh, other believers give to one another within church. The church creates its own societal values that deny the prevailing culture's claims that somehow it's just natural the way we see it. This social stratification is what we've lived with for centuries, so it can't be wrong. And those who argue that slavery has a rightness to it, the Christian value says no. In time, gospel values will bring an end to all forms of discriminatory practices within homes, within church, and within communities and throughout the world. That is provided we live according to those values and we mirror them to the world. The key to understanding this entire passage and all that it says is to look at the two verses that frame it. The first verse, 521, and the last verse, Chapter 6, verse 9. In that closing verse, it speaks of our worth and value to God. There is no favoritism before God. God makes no distinction of persons. 
And the opening verse governs each of our roles. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we like to say in America, all are created equal. But more than that, all have equal value to God. Jesus, our Savior, died for all. There's no favoritism with God, period. I'm reminded of that beautiful line in St. Augustine's prayer. God, you care for every one of us as if you cared for him or her alone. And so for all of us, as if all were but one. Which of your children do you love more? You know, that's a, you can't answer that question. And neither does God when it comes to his children. And the sacrifice God makes to convince us we're loved. Paul expects a mutual submission in each of these relationships. But in each of the pairs, the greater responsibility lies with the one whom the culture in his day considered superior. When we know we're loved, valued, and important to God, then we have the freedom and confidence to act from a position of vulnerability and that of being a servant. To submit our needs and our wants for the sake of Christ for those who belong to him. To act in their best interests and for their good as well as our own. So be it.